Hello and welcome to the Emotional Autoimmunity Podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Jeffrey. This podcast is all about having conversations about real life with chronic illness, bringing you interviews, information and inspiration to help you live your best life with chronic illness. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 20 of the Emotional Autoimmunity Podcast and my guest today is Robin Baldwin and Robin lives in, and I'm not sure I'm going to say this right Robin, but Ottawa, Canada with her husband and her two fur babies and she is an author, a yoga teacher, a digital marketing director and a podcast host and Robin was diagnosed with MS in 2014 And she's here today to talk about her story and what she's done with her life since that diagnosis. So welcome, Robin. So lovely to get to meet you today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You're so welcome. So what was going on for you in your life prior to that diagnosis? Sure. So I was diagnosed in December of 2014. So if I kind of go back a few months and years, A month before my diagnosis, I had actually gone on a solo adventure in Nicaragua surfing, um, and I had broken my nose. It was quite dramatic at the time. I flew home with a broken nose, Um, and when I started getting my symptoms a month later, I thought it was very much related. Um, I had started going numb on the right-hand side of my body. Uh, we're on video, so I'm like waving at you with my right hand. Uh, so my fingers started going numb, then it went up my arm. So I thought I had a pinched nerve and I thought the the trauma of the broken nose had caused this. So I went to see a chiropractor. He was brand new to me. So I did a full intake and let him know that my father has MS. So at this point, my torso had also started to go numb. And when my right boob went numb, that was probably like the weirdest feeling ever. Um, and it slowly went down the side of my body. And the chiropractor did all of the neurological tests that an MS patient may be very familiar with, including like pressing on hands, making you touch your nose, um, and all of these things. And um, at the end of the exam, he said, you know, if your symptoms continue, I think you should go and get an x-ray before I do an adjustment. Um, and I think he was trying to plant in my brain that I needed to start seeking answers. He didn't hint that he thought I had MS, but I think he knew. So after a few more days, this was over the course of a weekend, the entire right side of my body went numb. So like on a Saturday, my leg went numb. Then on Sunday, um, my calf and then my foot. So it was the entire right side of my body at the neck down. And on Monday, I decided just to drive my, I don't know why I waited till Monday morning, but I was like, just going to drive myself to the hospital and um, ask for some help. I was also dealing with incredible migraine pain um, the morning I had woken up. So uh, long story short, I um, was given a CAT scan and was told there was nothing on the CAT scan that I should go home. They gave me some anti-inflammatories for the migraine and said, you know, if this continues, come back in a few days. And I said, no, I'm sorry. What's our next test? can you do something else? Like, what is this? And the, the, the ER doctor said, well, we have a few spots for MRIs, 
um, but you're not urgent. So you'll need to wait until a time opens up kind of later in the day when we don't have urgent patients that need MRIs. Cool. Um, I was hooked up to and I was hooked up to an IV at this point. Um, so I just rolled my IV back into the waiting room and said, cool, later. Eight hours later, um, I got an MRI and they didn't give me dye contrast. They just did my spine because I had been complaining of like the numbness from the neck down. And an internist walked into my little kind of curtained area and said, there's demyelination on your spine. I believe you have MS, but we can't confirm it until you have a second MRI of your brain with the, the dye contrast. So you're telling me I have MS, but you're not sure. So you're planting this seed of fear in my head and you don't really know. Great. I'm really mad at you right now and all of the feelings. Um, and so I said, okay, when's the next MRI? And they said, again, you're not an urgent patient, so you'll have to hang out and wait. The next availability is tomorrow morning. Great, I'll go home, get a nice sleep, I'll come back in the morning. And they said, no, you can't leave or you get deprioritized. So they put me on a, uh, a hospital gurney and they wheeled me into a hallway because I, uh, I didn't deserve, I didn't deserve, I didn't get a room because I did not have heart or lung problems. And so I actually slept, slept um, in quotations, outside the nurse's <laughs> um, station in the bright light. Um, I remember trying to like pull sheets over my head to try to get some rest. And I just cried all night with a, this fear of a potential diagnosis. Um, and in the morning, I had the second MRI with dye contrast. And that's when they found over 20 lesions in my brain. And they confirmed that the, the lesion that was the culprit of the numbness was at my C2, C3 in my vertebra. Um, and then because of that, I fit the McDonald's criteria. So those with MS who are listening understand that like, because I checked those boxes, they could give me the diagnosis. Um, so that was the, that's the diagnosis story of kind of the frustrations, but also um, the, the speed at which I received my diagnosis. So I talk how I'm very grateful about the fact that I live in Canada with free healthcare. I could walk to the hospital and ask for these tests, um, and within 24 hours receive a diagnosis. Um, so I know I'm very blessed in that department because some people take years and years and years to get to the bottom of it. Um, but, uh, that, that is my MS diagnosis story. Mm, and still like really scary and I know the people with MS listening to you will understand exactly the tests and things that you're talking about but from my perspective like I don't know anything about MS and when you talk about what the chiropractor did what what was the little test that he did that made him think perhaps there's some MS going on? So what he wanted to test was um, functionality. So uh, in MS, what can happen is that you lose strength in your limbs. Um, so I hadn't lost any strength. Uh, I couldn't feel anything. So one of the tests that they do, it's a standard neurological test, is they get like the, the pitchfork and they hit it on something solid and then they touch it to one side of your body and then the other to see if you can feel the vibration. 
So at the time I could feel it on my left side. I couldn't feel it when he touched it to my skin. And so that's when he started to think that there was something neurological happening that means the nerves on my right side couldn't feel um, the tapping and the vibration. Mm-hmm. Um, he also did, there's a pin prick test. It's, it's not really a pin. Um, it's like a sharp skewer, I guess. Um, and he was uh, asked me to close my eyes and he would tap my skin and I could feel it on the side. I couldn't feel it on the right hand side. So um, he's, I believe that's why he thought it may be an MS diagnosis, especially because it ran in my family and that just puts you on the autoimmune spectrum. Um, but none of the, the strength tests, I'm also very stubborn. So like I knew he was testing me for strength. So one of the ones is like you put your hands out in front of you and they press down on your hands. And I was determined not to let him <laughs> push down on one more than the other. Um, so, yeah, so those are some of the neurological tests that a neurologist or a chiropractor may do. Right. And what's the McDonald's scale? Yeah, so the McDonald's criteria is just the number of lesions in your brain and your symptoms which allow you to receive the MS diagnosis. Many times they will also confirm the MS diagnosis with a spinal tap, but because of the over 20 lesions, I fit the criteria. So I opted not to have the spinal tap um, because there was over 20 lesions in my brain and I was symptomatic. So I'm like, okay, let's just, you know, how do I now take care of myself versus continuing to confirm what I When the the internist told me the night before the MRI that I had MS, I knew I had MS. Um, It just kind of, um, I just wanted to, one, I think we all like to have that confirmation. Um, But uh, two, I would have liked it all at once instead of piecemeal. um, Because one thing that I know many uh, may share is the fear. So because I was left by myself, Thankfully, I had, I immediately like called my army of support and um, one of my best friends like immediately brought contact solution and a contact case and um, stuff to drink and granola bars so that I could eat. And uh, we sat and I was bawling my eyes out and making jokes and it was just nice to have her. And I had friends come in the morning with smoothies and breakfast and My mom drove from, uh, at the time I was living in Toronto and my family lived in Ottawa and they drove, uh, my mom drove four and a half hours to be with me in the morning. And, um, but I was alone on that gurney at night and I thank social media and also um, it just like, I went down a wormhole. So I was looking at hashtag MS, hashtag multiple sclerosis multiple sclerosis on Instagram. And I was just seeing post after post of people sharing the pain and the suffering. And that was really, really hard to see. Um, I was seeing posts of people who have lost their mobility and are in wheelchairs. And so immediately there's the fear of, is that going to be me in a few years? How long do I have before my mobility goes? I, I live with a father who has MS who um, has great mobility but stumbles like he's drunk all the time. So that was my normal. Like that's what I was used to in terms of MS. But going on to social media, I saw the extremes and the really, really difficult symptoms. And so that's where the fear 
can come in, especially when you're all by yourself on a hospital gurney in the middle of a hallway and the bright lights. Um, But then the, the benefit of social media was I found on some of those posts, people using the hashtag MS warrior. And that's when I started seeing a community of people who had accepted that they had MS and were figuring out how to increase the quality of their life. Um, and we can chat about this, but there was also that like aspect of like, I am going to battle this disease. And so I definitely adopted that mentality very early on. Like I am going to fight this disease. I now am in a place where I accept my disease. Um, and I joke around all the time that I went through the four stages of grief overnight in that hospital as fast as possible so I could get to acceptance. And that was my overachiever self going like, oh, I don't have time for grief. I don't have time for sadness. I don't have time for anger. I'm just going to go to acceptance. Okay, now I live with MS. How do I do this thing? Um, yeah, so I absolutely love that I was able to change my mindset from um, warrior to thriver because I think that had an immense, um, an immense difference in my healing. But we all have different phases of our healing journeys. And I do believe the warrior aspect is needed sometimes because you just need to, you need to rally. So I absolutely love that I found that community because then I saw that people were living well with MS. They were taking care of themselves a little bit differently than they may have done before. Um, and they were showing that they were stronger than the disease. And so I, I definitely went into like, I am going to show this disease who's boss. <laughs> mm, and I think that's, that's a natural part of the process. Um, and I can relate to that myself because, you know, when I walked out of the doctor's office and I was completely disabled, like I could barely move, barely talk, um, barely function. And he just said, well, you're going to have to accept your new normal. And I was like, no way. Like, no, this is not acceptable. Like, no. And I realized it was up to me. And I had that same experience of when you first start looking into the disease, because the majority of the information out there is the suffering. Because there are so many people suffering who don't, for whatever reason, have recourse to um, information or knowledge or even to understand that there are things that we can do to help ourselves, both mentally, through the the food that we eat, through the environment, um, how we live. You know, they just don't get it because it's not like doctors are handing out that information and saying, here, you could change the food you eat and look at the toxins in your home and, you know, do some work on your emotional stuff. Like they're not giving that advice. They're just giving the diagnosis and the drug options if they're available and yeah you realize that point where it's up to me and personally I don't relate to the autoimmune warrior hashtag but I as you said I understand for some people that is something that they need to to go through to get that ability to fight because those of us with chronic illness have so many hurdles to overcome and like for most of us as you said you had a a pretty quick diagnosis but for most of us it's years and it's facing doctors who are disbelieving you who are fobbing you off who are gaslighting you and saying no it's not your thyroid or no it's not that or you're depressed or you're anxious or you're a mother that's why you're so exhausted that's normal or it's a natural part of the aging process which women are getting told in their early 30s which astonishes me right but there's all of this disbelief 
And in the face of all of that disbelief, and when you're living with a mainly invisible illness, then the people closest to you tend to disbelieve as well. And it's an easy step as a woman to get the hysterical or hypochondriac label because unfortunately doctors do share information, like you take your file from doctor to doctor. And those of us who are doctor shopping, they have a little tag that they use, which is called frequent flyers. So they can put that on the file and then that predisposes the next doctor who's already got in his mind this person clearly has issues, they're hypochondriac, they're attention-seeking, they're looking for something and they don't look any further, right? So the warrior aspect is absolutely needed because we do need to be assertive and we do need to fight for ourselves. But I also like what you said about autoimmune thriver, right? Because the way that I see it is the disease is something that's with me and I can either accept it and make friends with it and respect it, that it's there and we have to live together and I have to wait, make ways and find ways to accommodate it. If I fight it, if I make it the enemy, I'm at war with myself. Mm. And when you make something the enemy, you're afraid of it. And it's mm -hmm. something that you fight. And I honestly don't believe we need to fight the disease. We need to embrace it and say, okay, you're here. We're here together. This is my life. Now, what can I do to make this as good for us as I possibly can? Because if I, you know, give you less stress and I give you better food and I give you more rest, you're going to go to sleep. Right, you're going to get really quiet and really sleepy, and that means I can live like I can live, and I've got energy, and I've got function, and I've got mobility. So that's why I really like that, you know, more <laughs> autoimmune thriver, or however you want to put it, that it is now part of your life, and this is the way it is, and let's make the best of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because they're um, they're definitions that allow us to connect with other people. And I have this conversation on my um, alpha female podcast all the time because I have a definition for what an alpha female is. Um, and I'm a word, um, I guess, obsessed person. So I love looking into definitions because I love explaining them to see how I relate to them. So I, I loved looking into warrior and I understood that it was a part of my journey. Um, and I think everybody will go through their own phases in their own time and figure it out for themselves, which I think is also the beauty of having an autoimmune disease is teaching yourself so much self-awareness and um, ability to listen to your body and even your mind um, and your intuition in terms of when you want to switch the words from identifying as an MS uh, or autoimmune warrior to uh, an MS thriver or autoimmune thriver or um, whatever your sidekick is. So for example, I call MS my sidekick, my health sidekick that is teaching me how to take care of myself. And I used to say, taking care of myself better than I was before, but then that wasn't giving myself any grace. That was too critical. So now I say just taking care of myself differently than I was before, because this is just my new normal. It's not better than what was happening before, um, because then, then I'm not criticizing myself for choices or things that happened in my past, because I remember writing a blog post maybe six months after the diagnosis saying all the things I wish I hadn't done. So like, I wish I didn't eat gluten. I wish I had cut dairy a whole lot sooner. 
Um, I wish I hadn't gotten into a toxic relationship two years before my MS diagnosis. Like, but then that's being really, really hard on myself. And uh, I'm not going to thrive if, I am, um, if I'm criticizing myself and my past choices. Mm, absolutely. And when I, as I'm working with clients as a therapist, that's one of the biggest things that people with chronic illness have is they have so much guilt and so much shame and so much anger and frustration that they believe that they caused the disease because hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And you can look back and go, oh, I should have picked it up then or why didn't I notice that? And why was I doing that? And why was I in that relationship exactly as you said? But like we can't change the past. It happened the way that it happened. And like I can go back in my mind and see the seeds of my Hashimoto's were there when I was like eight years old. And within the space of a year, I went from a normal sized child to an obese child with no real change in what I was doing. I was very active. I was always outside, roller skating, doing all sorts of things. And I just became this obese child. And like my mother took me to the doctor and he thought maybe it's, you know, a thyroid thing because that's all they knew was thyroid's weight, like weight gain. And he just said, oh, it's puppy fat, right? She'll grow out of it, which I never did. I went on to become an obese adult and I struggled with weight all of my life because of this slow, slow, slow decline of my thyroid that I wasn't aware of. Now, I could have gone back and said, oh, Kerry, why didn't you stop eating gluten? Or why didn't you give up sugar? Or why didn't you do that? But that wasn't the path, right? We were doing all of the things that society says is normal. It is normal to eat gluten. It is normal to drink alcohol. It is normal to a certain extent to have bad relationships because it's a common experience we all have. We were just living life in our culture, a normal life, right? So there is no blame. The only thing we can change about the past is how we choose to see ourselves in the past. And when you can understand that there is nothing you could have gone, done differently. Because honestly, if you'd have gone back to you, yourself 10 years before that and said, Robin, if you don't stop doing this, you're going to get MS. I mean, what would you have said? Like, yeah, right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, I'll believe it when it happens, right? And now we're going to take a quick break so I can share this with you. One of the things you've probably heard time and time again is that you have to learn to manage your stress. Now, why is this important? Well, if you're living with autoimmune disease, stress alone is enough to create inflammation, which means more symptoms in your body. The more stress you have, the more inflammation you have, and the worse you feel. So I've created something especially to help you, and it's called the Relaxed Hypnotherapy Bundle. This bundle contains a 40-minute relaxation hypnotherapy with me, complete with the sound of ocean waves. You can listen to it night or day, and it's going to help you relax deeply, allow all the muscles in your body to relax, allow the mind to relax, and when you play it overnight, it will help you sleep more deeply and easily. There's also an ebook that gives you all of the tips and strategies that you can use right now to start managing your worry and managing your stress. And there's also an audio version of the workbook for those times when you just are too tired or too brain fogged to read. 
Now you can get this bundle, the Relaxed Hypnotherapy Bundle, over at my website for only $25 Australian. It's available in my online store at www.emotionalautoimmunity.com. Head over and grab your bundle now. And now, let's back to the show. Yeah. And I, um, I asked that question on my podcast to my guests I, because I'm, I'm, I am fascinated with my journey in terms of slowly releasing my attachment to the past because that is something in um, my mental health journey that has been, um, uh, I was going to say struggle, but I'm really trying not to use negative words, but it's something that I have um, definitely like gone up and down against in terms of really criticizing where I was and choices and decisions that I made. Um, And so one of the things that I always ask my guests is, um, you know, if you could tell your 20-year-old emerging alpha female self one piece of advice, what would you tell them? And it's fascinating to hear my guests say, like, not something to change their direction, but something comforting. Um, Like, it's okay if you slow down. Or it's like, please love you for you at this moment. Like, you know, and I, I just love hearing the hindsight um, insights that everyone has, but it's so true. Your 20 year old self was probably not going to listen to you. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And it gave me actually even more impetus to really respect and love my body because I had this moment when I found a doctor who actually was willing to work with me. And she just said, Kerry, you are, you are dangerously ill. Like I've never seen anybody as bad as you with what you have. Like you could, you could die. Like don't, so don't, don't push yourself too hard. If you walk, walk slowly, like do not run, do not exert yourself. You could go into heart failure. You are so low, you know, you really should have been taken to hospital because you were 48 hours away from a coma. Right. So on the one hand, it was incredibly validating because I felt in myself like I was dying, like I could feel my organs starting to shut down. I knew I was deathly ill. But when that first doctor just said, oh, well, take your pill, get used to your new normal and sort of sent me out the door. And mind you, this guy had been seeing me for going in with my kids for like 18 years And I looked sick. Like, I did not look like me at all. I looked like the picture of Dorian Gray. I'd aged, like, 20 years. My hair was falling out. It just was obvious that I was really ill. And I was driving back from that second appointment after she just said, you know, you're really ill. And I was like, oh, thank God, you know, it's real. I know this Mm -hmm. is true. And I sort of pulled over on the side of the road and just said to my body, you are amazing. Like to think that you have kept me going with everything Mm. I've done to you over the years, all the abuse that I've heaped on you, the years of disordered eatings and diets and and abuse because I hated my body. Like I went through Mm. so many phases of hating my body and I was just like, I'm going to do everything I can for you. Like if you can keep me going for 55 years with everything I've done, imagine what you could do like I'm excited to see what you can do if I really (laughs) look after you like if I really really give you the the good food that you need and the rest and that so that was a real major turnaround for me in terms of respect for this amazing body that I get the privilege of living in and I think um, you've probably seen this as well in your community that a lot of people 
feel like their body is doing this to them deliberately, almost with malice, as if their body deliberately sets out to ruin an event or ruin their life for them. And that's a really toxic place to be in. Mm -hmm. And I still um, get frustrated with my body, even though I am grateful for um, the health that I have today and taking care of myself and how empowered my body has become in terms of uh, like I can listen to it and know immediately if something is off but I still get frustrated with it because I'm still human and so I get symptoms when I overheat um, so one of the things in the MS world um, and in the autoimmune world like I know fatigue and uh, overheating is a real thing with more than just MS but because my um, symptomatic lesion at uh, C2, C3, so I'm pointing at the back of my neck, is what is um, symptomatic. Um, when I overheat, because that's where the myelin sheath has been eaten away around my central nervous system, if I get hot, my CNS can't communicate to my body. So all of the symptoms from time of diagnosis come back when I overheat. So I have tried to push my body quite far when I was in my warrior phase. The year after my diagnosis, I ran 20 obstacle course races in one year um, because I had something to prove that I was stronger than MS. Um, <laughs> I think I had even put up like a picture, um, MS stands for mighty strong. And I had something to prove. I had, I had to prove that I was stronger than MS. Um, and my best friend is actually going through a diagnosis right now. Um, she received a breast cancer diagnosis in February, and she's a competitive cyclist on top of a vice president for a bank. So another alpha female, we can talk about those personalities. Um, but she is taking her, um, her time to train competitively to make the national team in Canada and go to the Olympics. Um, a week after her double mastectomy, she was back on the bike. And she's undergoing radiation right now, and uh, she, she would be fine with me having this conversation because we've had it on the podcast. But she um, is undergoing radiation right now, and her last race didn't go well. And I was like, what is your body telling you? But I need her to, like I can't tell her what her body is telling her. She's like, my body's exhausted. I'm like, and what are you gonna do about it? She's like, I'm going to bed now, and I'm not going training tomorrow. I'm like, okay. like she's. She's listening to herself, but we all have to come to that realization. I had practitioners tell me that I was crazy for wanting to run 20 races. I get it. I had to do it for myself. I had to develop adrenal fatigue <laughs> to fix that after. Um, but uh, the more we talk about it, the more somebody in their warrior phase may hear the conversation and go, oh, that totally sounds like me oh, I don't feel well doing all of these physical exertions. Maybe I need to learn what rest actually means. And even to this day, if I go for a run, it's, um, we're, in, we're in Celsius in Canada, so it's around 35 Celsius, and the Humidex in Ottawa is absolutely ridiculous. It's like 40, 45. So I, even if I go for a run in the morning, I come back overheated. The right side of my body has gone numb. I will sit on the ground in my foyer crying, mad at my body and my husband will bring me a cooling pack and a glass of water um, and tell me I'll be fine, that I just need to cool down and that I can stop crying. And I'm like, I know. He's like, why are you mad at your body? Because I hate that it does this, but you know it's gonna do this. 
I know, but I'm still going to get frustrated. So that, that, um, doesn't just like, you don't change your mindset one day and say, you know, I am accepting this disease as my sidekick and, and all of the frustration goes away. Um, so it still, it still happens to this day. And I think that's important to have a conversation around because we are human and we're not fembots. And uh, even though we may do all the things to take care of ourselves, we still have moments of pain and frustration and shame and guilt. And we figure out what works for us to move through those, how to feel the feelings. I do believe that one of the reasons why I was on the autoimmune spectrum, so one of the boxes that was checked that allowed my body to get confused was the fact that I've always stomached my feelings. I've always pushed them down. Um, and my mother and I have had great conversations since my diagnosis. I've gone to see psychotherapists about it, but my mother would comfort me when I cried as a child. And I just thought that meant that I needed to stop crying as fast as possible because it upset her that I was upset. So I've learned, um, even now to this day, if I start crying, I swallow and I wipe my face and I don't let the tears flow. And so that's something that I'm learning how to actually feel because my husband is very similar to my mom. He comforts me and doesn't like seeing me cry. So I want to stop crying as fast as possible. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that I'm working through and learning is how to actually feel my feelings because you can read a million and one quotes about, um, you know, riding the waves, like feeling the feelings, letting them pass. Um, but that doesn't mean that I won't stop swallowing and trying to cry, trying to stop crying when I feel sadness. Yeah, exactly. And so many good points in that. And I think the the biggest emotional challenge of chronic illness is that it's it's ongoing and it's unpredictable. And you know, you can you might you know have phases like I do where it, it feels like oh I'm feeling really great. It's like the disease isn't there anymore, and then it'll just go whack upside of the head and like oh there you are okay yes you are there and this is real and I do have this and and it's always like an adjustment because there's always grief like every time I have a flare I go back into grief because it's a real and present reminder of everything that's changed in my life it's a real and present reminder that this is here and this is part of me so it's an ongoing adjustment process like every time I have to say no to something that I really wanted to do or every time somebody invites me you know to eat something that I can't eat or every time I face a limitation like you know I'm not at the point where I can freely jump on a plane and, and travel and I don't know if I ever will be right everything I do has an extra layer of difficulty because like for example I went on a holiday recently and um, I went close to where I am so only about 35 minutes away by car it was a self-contained place so I could take all of my food so I've got to work out how to keep all the food there then I've got to have enough supplies for me and then I've got to take some of my cooking utensils because theirs aren't usually that great so I take the things that I need and make sure that I've got my medication and any other little things that I need so it's like everything that I do has to accommodate the changes in my life that have come about for chronic illness. And it's impossible to get away from that, right? Because there's no more just get up and go like I used to. So it's a constant adjustment of my mind and using the different mind shift techniques and things just to 
allow the feelings, as you say, go through the grief. Like I will often throw myself a big pity party because I need it, right? I need it. It's, it's valid. It's real what I'm going through. This isn't the life I thought I was going to be living. I had it all mapped out. This wasn't what I planned for, but it's what I've got. So it's mm -hmm. that constant up and down and up and down and it's about stepping in with compassion for yourself and what you said before about swallowing your feelings it's what we're taught right we are taught from a very early age that we are so powerful that we can make people feel things like we can make people hurt we can make people disappointed we can make people angry which is totally untrue right you you literally can't get inside somebody else's head and make them feel anything so we carry this emotional load for everybody else in our lives. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients is teaching them a new framework of emotional responsibility so they understand what they're really responsible for. So you're not carrying all of that guilt, but that's a conversation for another day. So mm -hmm. it's important that people understand that it's not like you and I have reached this magical nirvana level of life with chronic illness where everything is wonderful and we never get flares and we always feel good and life is, you know, rainbows yeah. and unicorns. It's not. I mean, I've got my daily struggles. You've got your daily struggles and it's just dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And I talk all the time about how um, autoimmune disease teaches us how to become our best healthcare advocates, but I still leave the family doctor's office in tears uh, because I can only stand up for myself so many times and deal with practitioners that are so closed-minded before I just, I, I get upset. My husband has to, we actually just found a new family doctor that is absolutely amazing. So I'm, I'm super excited. But um, when I moved from Toronto to Ottawa, I didn't realize that I had an amazing family doctor in Toronto. Um, and when the way that the healthcare system here works is you put your name into a system and it feeds out and sends you to a doctor. Um, and I went to over 20 meet and greets. And the doctor would walk into the room and I would ask them a few key questions. And one of them was simply, would you requisition blood work every six months to a year so that I can look at my vitamin and mineral levels and optimize my supplement protocol with my naturopath? And I, every time they said flat out, no. And I would stand up and walk out. Like that was it. If they weren't willing to do that for me. Um, because a naturopath can requisition it for me, but that's out of pocket and taking care of yourself holistically, um, in addition to conventionally, uh, depending on where you live and all of the, the rules and regulations. But if you're choosing to, um, do a lot of holistic things, which was my path, um, it can become very expensive. So I was trying to minimize my costs as much as possible. So that, that was a journey. But my husband, when I finally just landed on a doctor that said she would test once a year instead of every, and I was like, okay, I will, I will do the once a year and then I'll pay at the six month mark. And um, my husband would have to come with me to appointments because uh, it would be everything from um, going in with a UTI to the doctor saying things like, did you try to teach, like treat this naturally for a few weeks? and just being very condescending 
um, which of course I did try to treat naturally for maybe a week at most, but I can't even get those words out because the doctor has already formed an opinion around me. Um, so I talk about being this proactive healthcare advocate, but I still have moments where I encounter practitioners and uh, they don't understand or they're not willing to work collaboratively with me or they call me an internet uh, warrior um, instead of uh, actually talking through the education that I have given myself so that I could have a better conversation with a practitioner. So that still happens to this day and that still leaves me in tears frustrated. Mm, yeah and it's normal because there is all these roadblocks and that's what I was saying that it's we might have more knowledge or we might be a little bit further down whatever our journey is but there are still those very real um, barriers and roadblocks and and gaslighting and dismissal and disbelief that we face every day and it does get exhausting being an advocate for yourself. I remember even in, within my own family, once I started getting better, because I lived then with both of my sons, um, once I started getting better, they were like, oh, mum's okay now. Mum can go back to doing everything. And I would be like in there talking to them saying, guys, come on, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to step up. You, I can't, I literally can't do this. I, I can't do this. I know I look well, but I'm not. I have limited energy. And I would often be sitting there in tears like, you, why don't you believe me? Like, you, you, you don't understand how this feels. And we're always going to come up against those barriers right that, that are there and some days you'll deal with that better than other days right? and I think sometimes an emotional response is the correct response right because sometimes that is the only way to show people that this is really important to me right I'm scared I feel alone I feel isolated I feel upset mm-hmm. now the sad thing about that with doctors is the minute you start going into tears they just completely wipe you off, right? And they look at oh, depressed, anxious, antidepressant, anti-anxiety, psychologist referral. Like literally when you start crying, they stop listening. Yeah. So it's a bit of a catch-22, that one. Mm-hmm, for sure. Mm. And we were talking before we started recording because the name of your podcast, as you said, is Alpha Female. And there is quite a little bit of um, research and, and correlation done with people who go on to develop autoimmune conditions who would classify themselves as a type A personality, which is, you know, very driven, very ambitious, very highly motivated, lots of energy, lots of determination, which I was saying I'm, I'm not. I'm like the anti-type A. <laughs> I've always been a little bit more chilled about things. But do you, do you believe that that has that mindset or that personality trait does contribute? For sure. So I discovered that this was possibly something that helped contribute to my body becoming confused when I read the book When the Body Says No by Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, and he has, for anyone that hasn't read the book, has categorized his patients qualitatively and quantitatively into different buckets. So he's taken all of his cancer patients, all of his rheumatoid arthritis patients, all of his MS patients, um, and kind of looked to see, um, 
what were common threads among them. And so I obviously remember the MS chapter the best, but the things that I was reading were uh, a type personality, overachiever. Um, so I've been an overachiever ever since my, my grandfather's memorial service when I discovered that he had been the president of Air Canada and as uh, uh, a, a scholar, he had helped establish basically every single airport in Canada. He had worked with the Department of Transportation and I knew none of this until he passed away. And I was sitting in his memorial service going, wow, what have I done with my life? And my dad has a PhD from Harvard. So this just like, it keeps keeps going down. So I was like, I need to do all the things. And I've always been an all the things person. Even in high school, I was in ballet. I was teaching swimming. I was a lifeguard. I was hostessing at a local restaurant as like my second part-time job. I was in all of the musicals. I was in the band. I was on students council. I was running leadership camps. I think that's it. Um, so I've always been that, like, have to do all of the things. And I do believe that that has been passed down um, on the fraternal side of my family. And when I read the book, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Am I just, am I doing too much? But I don't, like, I don't feel stressed, um, but I'm, I'm doing a lot. Um, and I'll come back to the book, but one thing my naturopath said after my diagnosis, we sat and we did an intake and I you know, even if you read my bio out, like I'm a blogger, I'm a podcaster, I'm an essential oil educator, I'm, I've created this new auto, like I'm still doing it. Um, it's, it's very ingrained in me. Um, but my naturopath said, why do you think that you need to be superwoman? And although she's given me an amazing protocol, I think those words are the most powerful thing she has said in my healing journey. Um, and I'm still, I'm, I'm still in the middle of that lesson. I remember when I moved from Toronto to Ottawa, uh, when I met my husband, he had gotten me to make a spreadsheet, because of course I love spreadsheets, of all the things I was doing, what were some of the things that I loved, and then what were some that brought me revenue. And if I loved it and it brought me revenue, I could keep it. If um, I was doing something that I loved, I had to really, really love it to keep it. Um, and then if I was doing something that brought me revenue, but I hated it, I had to cut it. And so for example, um, at the time I was freelance writing for a supplement company, I was ghostwriting for the CEO, I was writing all of his blogs for him. And it was very, very research intense, there was no creativity, very dry. And although it paid quite a lot, I did not love it. And so I cut that out. And so little ways I've learned to not be superwomen are by things like that. But they're usually inspired by someone in my life, like my naturopath or my husband, just kind of like nudging me in the direction to make that decision for myself. Mm. Um, so the rest of the, the rest of the book, um, the chapter on MS patients was overachiever, A-type personality, and had been in a toxic relationship. And I had called off a wedding in 2012, so two years before my diagnosis, and I had left a very toxic relationship where I was living with someone who was um, bipolar and suicidal. So I was taking care of an individual and I felt the responsibility and the weight on the world on me to keep somebody else alive. 
Um, so all of my people pleasing skills, um, and at the time I was a fitness competitor, so I was doing that. I was, I was climbing the corporate ladder at work. I was doing all these things. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was losing who I was. Um, I was just staying busy. I was doing all of the things and I was trying to, um, keep myself distracted from the pain that I was experiencing at home, um, and just do all the things. So I can, I truly saw after reading that book and I remember Periscope was a thing back then when I was reading this book and I would do a morning intention setting every morning live. And I remember sharing with my viewers that I just finished the book and I broke down crying on the screen saying, I truly believe that the toxic relationship that I left in 2012 was one of the contributing factors to my diagnosis. Um, and just broke down crying. <laughs> and mm. it was, it was so cathartic to have that aha moment with people that love me and watch me every single morning. I had my little support system. Um, but that was a huge, huge moment for me because I realized that, you know, I could change the way that I was eating and how I was nourishing myself. I had already tackled, you know, getting quality and quantity of sleep. I was slowly reducing my exposure to toxins in my environment from my, you know, beauty products to makeup to cleaning products. Uh, I was taking all the supplements that my naturopath had prescribed. I was doing really well. But I hadn't addressed stress management. I hadn't addressed mindfulness um, or just being okay with me. Uh, and that's when I went back uh, to psychotherapy. I'd seen a psychotherapist after leaving that relationship. I went back to a psychotherapist and really started exploring talk therapy in terms of, oh, I guess this is now where I process all of the grief that I didn't want to process in the hospital bed. <laughs> Mm, exactly. And there's very, very um, good research out there showing correlations um, from the child adverse experience. And there, there is actually a, a test that you can do online to sort of tick and it'll tell you how many and, you know, what your chances are. And the correlation with that is that people who experience childhood adverse um, experience so that can be neglect it can be abuse it can be living with an addict or um, living with violence in the home a whole lot of different things have a much higher correlation of developing autoimmune conditions and other illnesses as they get older and the evidence is quite clear and I think um, that's why I do the work that I do right because what I do is that's why I'm emotional autoimmunity because people don't understand the day-to-day -day impact that it has on how you feel if you're living with unresolved trauma right? and toxic relationships contain a lot of trauma and toxic relationships can be so so incredibly damaging because of the abuse the emotional abuse and the, the way that they gaslight you, the way that they try and make you feel responsible for their life, for their happiness, for their moods, so that you start to change and you start to adapt and you start to try to manage them emotionally, which means, oh, I just got accused of um, if I hadn't been so annoying, then he wouldn't drink right? Or if I hadn't have been so defiant, then he wouldn't have gotten so angry with me. Or if I was home more, then he would be there for me. So they, they point the fingers back at you. And what happens is you start to change your behavior to anticipate their needs, right? And it's so, 
soul destroyed. And there's so many traumas in there and there's so much that goes into how you see yourself and how you value your worth and whether you believe you're lovable or worthy, deserving or enough. And, and so I do lots of hypnotherapy and things like that to get into all of those unconscious patterns. So, yeah, that is definitely a factor. And with all of the clients that I've been working with, I have yet to meet anybody who hasn't sustained some sort of trauma, even if they weren't aware that it was. Because unfortunately, these sort of relationships are so common that people tend to underestimate how damaging they are and they still point the fingers back. As you probably did and said, well, it must have been me, right? I wasn't, I wasn't enough. I wasn't enough for him. I wasn't strong enough to keep him going. I wasn't good enough to, to be there. I wasn't enough to save the relationship. All of those different sorts of things. So the fingers are always back here. And you keep trying and trying and trying harder and harder. And you combine that with a type A personality, right? And that's the recipe for disaster because you're just going to burn out one way or another. You're going to burn out. And I think one of the things that is interesting about illness is that the body has a way of stopping us if we're not listening. Like it will say, okay, you didn't listen when I niggled and I will stop you. I will make you pay attention to this because guess what? You're not going to be able to walk. Or guess what? You're not going to be able to feel. Or guess what? You're not going to be able to work, right? I'm going to make you pay attention to this. And I find that really fascinating. Yeah, so I absolutely love that MS has taught me how to put myself first. So I've built that into the definition of an alpha female that an alpha female to go after all of her goals and her dreams and her ambitions. Um, she can do all of that through work-life harmony, which is um, just figuring out your priorities and sticking to them, but taking care of yourself in a happy and healthy manner. So, you know, you can work 90% of your time if you are taking care of yourself. And if you're doing all the things to support your health, uh, and also doing the things that make you happy and building in, you know, all of pleasures um, as well as passions, uh, then, you know, the amount of, you know, those percentages don't really matter. So I built that into the definition um, in 2000 and um, when did I launch? I launched the podcast in 2016, so two years after my diagnosis. Um, and I inadvertently did that because I was learning how to put myself first again with MS. When I was living with my ex-fiance all those years ago, I was walking on eggshells around them uh, because I didn't want my actions to cause them to have a suicide attempt. Mm. So I lost, I lost me and I lost even just simple self-care. I, I wouldn't go to the gym so that I could be home to monitor them. Um, I wouldn't go out with friends so I could be home. Um, and I, my book, Love Lost, Life Found, was about me rediscovering a life that I absolutely love. And so I wrote that uh, purely from a, how I healed my broken heart, but really it was how did I find a life that I absolutely love. And most of the things that I put in there are things that even serve me in my MS journey from simple you know, taking care of yourself from a fitness and health perspective, like getting your water in. I started really small because fitness was my thing before 
I was like, okay, let me just get my, my daily water consumption in. And then the next week it was, all right, I'm going to pack my lunches again. And then it was, okay, I'm going to full out meal prep again. And so those things served me to heal my broken heart. And then I did them all over again when I was diagnosed with MS and started with my baby steps in terms of the, you know, the foundations of health, Hmm. starting small, implementing one new thing at a time. So I believe that that, that having my heart broken was so instrumental to happening first so that when I faced my MS, I knew exactly the steps to take, to take care of myself again. Hmm. That's amazing. And it sounds like it's been this whole process of you giving up being that driven superwoman to be owning you, like becoming Robin and deciding what I want to do with my life and how I want to live my life and the things that I want to do. Like I said, that list of, you know, what's giving me income and that I love and, and getting rid of all the things that drain you and focusing on the things that light you up and I'm curious because when you mentioned that your father has MS has everything or anything you've learned been able to benefit him like has he been able to improve his life with MS as a result of what you've gone through so my mother is really good at implementing things that I've done for myself in their household Um, you know, I'll go over for dinner now and, um, it's an autoimmune paleo friendly meal, uh, that she may have, um, you know, white potatoes, but she'll have sweet potatoes for me as well. Um, and my dad, (laughs) my dad is very funny. So I believe, I don't even know how old my dad, my dad is in his mid seventies and and he has this kind of mentality where he's like, well, I'm near the end of my life. So like, I don't really need to increase the quality of my life. I just need to kind of maintain it. So, um, you know, if there's butter on the table and then there's the plant-based butter, he'll reach for the real butter and then kind of look at me like, like, I hope you didn't notice that. <laughs> um, so I try not to criticize him because I have a personality where I'm, I'm, I can be very judgmental of others, especially when I know, uh, when they know better and they should do better for themselves, there, it's not my job to should on other people. And that's another thing that I've been learning. So A-type personalities, you know, once we learn something, um, and someone asks us for advice, we want to give it because we're like, Oh, I've learned this. Let me teach you. And then when they don't implement it, you get really frustrated because you're like, I just taught, you just asked me for this advice. Why aren't you doing it? So, you know, if my dad asked me for advice and then touches gluten and dairy and then doesn't feel well, he knows better Um, because he knows that it's been able to work for me. So it's a, it's a delicate balance. Uh, He has done so much in terms of his health. Um, You know, he'll be struggling with something and he'll look at me. He's like, what do you suggest? You're going to tell me to go to the naturopath, aren't you? okay, I'll make, like, he doesn't even let me talk. Like, he just kind of has a conversation with me, knowing what I'll say. So that's very, that's very promising. But he's definitely incorporating the building blocks of health. So they're eating a very AIP-based meal plan. My dad's taking very similar supplements, and then he's got other health issues. So our our naturopath that I've sent him to um, helps adjust his protocol. Sleep, he's always trying to optimize. My mom has reduced the toxin exposure in the household, so that's one of them. 
but even my dad is an overachiever. So my dad was supposed to retire three years ago and is still on contract with the government and works every single day and writes papers for Statistics Canada. So he has still not retired. So both of us are still learning the whole overachiever um, mm. mentality. Yeah. Mm. And what would be your best advice to anyone who's listening who identifies as a type A personality or an alpha female who is suffering with limitations at the moment and is so keenly aware and frustrated that they are not able to do the things that they were able to do before and finding a lot of misery in that process. I mean, what would you say about finding acceptance for that? It's going to see a practitioner that can listen to you and help you dissect work and worth. So A-type personalities, I believe that the work that I put into this world is what makes me worthy and valuable. And to this day, I am still figuring that out. And I'm still having conversations with my therapist around that um, because I haven't had my aha moment yet. I haven't had, um, you know, uh, just like, oh, that's what it is. Because I still am trying to prove that I'm worthy. I'm still trying to prove that I am valuable and that um, what I am putting into this world is of value and is helping. Um, and so it's, it's taking a moment every time somebody writes me a comment on my blog or sends me a direct message or a private message thanking me for sharing my journey and being so grateful that I was able to impact even just one life. Um, because as I build things in this world, I want to touch as many people as possible. I want to leave a legacy. I would love to see autoimmune disease become something um, that is eradicated in my lifetime. I have really big dreams and really big goals, but that's not going to serve me very well um, in my healing journey if I think that I am the only person that can accomplish all of those things and that my life will have meaning only if I accomplish those things. So it's very hard to separate um, worth from the dreams. Um, and know that my dreams are separate um, from me being worthy of um, love and affection for just who I am um, and not the things that I do. Mm. And that is an ongoing process. And you know, I was having a conversation with a client the other day and, and she was feeling tremendous guilt because at the moment she's going through a really hideous flare and you know, she can't get the kids to all their after-school activities and she doesn't feel like she's being a very good mother and being a mother was what she always wanted to do. And like I said to her, you can be a great mother from your bed, right? Because if you talk to the children of people that have grown up with a parent, you know, with a disability or with a chronic illness, they don't remember all the things that they missed out on, right? They will say, oh, yeah, I remember when I, I sort of liked it when mum was sick in bed because I'd get into bed with her and we'd lay there and snuggle and I'd read her stories and we'd cuddle and we'd have these little talks or we'd watch a movie together. And they're those little things that people remember. And, you know, you are always enough because that's all you can do, right? If all you can do right now is this, then that's enough and it's got to be enough because that's all you can do. 
right? And I think women do really struggle with that association of, of worth. So it's what we give to other people that seems to become what we believe is valuable about ourselves. And that's one of the biggest things that women need to learn is to step back from that overgiving because if you don't fill your own cup, like if you're not taking time to do the things that give you joy, then all you're going to feel is resentment and frustration and more guilt, right, which leads to exhaustion, which means mm-hmm. that resentment because you start resenting the job or you resent the people that you're working with or you resent your partner or you resent your children for these endless demands that it feels like they're making on you. But we've got to understand that's all self-driven because mm-hmm. we think how to treat us by what we're willing to tolerate and accept and when you step back into that and say no this is this has to change right I need to come first and a lot of people will say oh my god that is so selfish like no that's that's essential right the way I look at it after chronic illness is I am the most important person in my life And people will think that's ego. Like, no, because if I don't look after myself, I can't show up for anyone else. If I don't take care of myself and if I don't have my boundaries and if I don't manage my energy, then nobody's going to get any benefit from me because I'm going to be because I'm going to be angry, because I'm going to be depressed, I'm going to be exhausted, all of those things. But the more I look after myself, that means I can show up and do things like this podcast and I can show up for my clients. And like I work my life around this. This is why I changed to working 100% online because having clients come to my home, which was the model in the past, it took me so much more effort and energy to make sure the house was clean and everything had to be tidy before they came. And I was like you, I went through that process and having people at home, just it felt like a burden because it was taking my energy, which meant I could show up for less people, less effectively. Mm -hmm. And you go through that process of going, oh, but my clients will be really disappointed because they love coming to see me here. It's like, well, what's more important, right? I'm not going to make their emotions more important than mine. Either they'll understand and they'll be happy to work online or they'll have to find another therapist. If I don't look after me, nothing else is going to happen. And it's always making that choice, understanding that everyone around you benefits from a happier you, a healthier you, a a more better rested, well-rested, energised you. It's win-win. Yeah. um, You read at the beginning in my bio that I have two fur babies. So I have two very large fur babies that shed quite a lot. I have a German Shepherd Husky mix and a Dutch Shepherd. And I don't think I have vacuumed in a month and a half. And uh, the only time I vacuum is if we're having guests over and I rarely have guests over. So uh, that is just not a priority in my life. I mentioned to my husband, I was like, it kind of smells like dog in here. We may need to clean. Um, But back to the putting yourself first. In the definition of an alpha female at the beginning of my podcast, I used to say that an alpha female puts herself first so that she can have more energy for others. And then I had a podcast guest say, stop it. An alpha female puts herself first, period, end of story. It is not about others. Mm. And technically, the byproduct of more energy um, and uh, vitality is that 
you know, we have energy and space for the relationships in our life. So it's mm. simply a byproduct. It's not we take care of ourselves because of that. Yes. It's, it, just, it just happens. It's a side effect. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a side effect. And so, you know, the more you look after you, the more impact you have because you can show up in a more meaningful way, in a more present way, in a way that feels good for you without all of the guilt and the shame and all of that. So, Robin, it's been so great to talk to you and, and meet you. So can you just tell people of what you do and how they can find you? For sure. So I created Autoimmune Thriving this year. Um, because I'm at a place now in my healing journey where I really, really want to empower newly diagnosed, so someone that is brand new to the autoimmune disease world, how to thrive instead of just feeling like they need to survive this. So autoimmune thriving is three pillars. I've created yoga retreats that right now are local to the Ottawa area in Canada. Um, and then I'm launching an online program on August 7th for newly diagnosed, it's an eight-week course that basically gives you uh, a tour guide, me, I'm your tour guide to healing, um, and it gives you a plan in terms of talking about all the different aspects of health, talking to different experts, so I've invited experts like naturopaths and registered holistic nutritionists and chiropractors and functional medicine doctors in to answer question and answer periods every single week. Um, and it just helps you kind of navigate the healing world so that you don't feel overwhelmed and that you can learn how to be your best healthcare advocate. And then the third pillar of autoimmune thriving is a treatment fund. So I'm taking a portion of the proceeds from the retreats and the program, and I'm putting it into a treatment fund. And we use language here in Canada, um, like someone that doesn't have a benefits plan uh, or in the U.S., someone that doesn't have insurance. So I'm hoping to gift people with the treatment fund proceeds so that they can try different holistic healing modalities that they may not have thought of. And it's simple things like I, uh, the money that I got from my uh, autoimmune yoga retreat in May, I've put a portion aside to pay for somebody's massage um, because they may be prioritizing all these different healing modalities but they haven't gotten a massage, which is just so calming to the nervous system. So I'm paying for somebody to go to that. And after the program launches, we'll see how much, how much proceeds I have to put aside. Um, and I'm kind of figuring it out as I go. But my goal here is to give back to the autoimmune community um, and help those not necessarily like people don't like raising their hand and saying, I need financial assistance. Um, but it's just gifting people with a little bit of holistic healing assistance that they maybe didn't consider. Um, and I'm, I'm just figuring it out as I go. So my kind of home base for that is autoimmunethriving.com. And I'm hanging out all the time on Instagram um, under the same name at autoimmunethriving. Fantastic. And thank you so much, Roman. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you today. Thank you for having me on. And everyone will be back in a couple of weeks with another great guest for you with another podcast. Bye for now. You have been listening to the Emotional Autoimmunity Podcast. You can read the show notes over at my website, 
www.emotionalautoimmunity.com and sign up to get your free copy of Moving Through the Grief of Chronic Illness, a nine-phase model from anxiety to resilience. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and if you enjoyed this episode, I would love you to leave a review. Thanks for listening.